Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. What all the interviews of Mark and Andrew, you there was one person that you seemed the least comfortable talking about. Do you know who that was? Susan, Kathy. Susan. Susan. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know I'm gonna lay my cards on the table. I'm here talking to you today because I truly believe, Bob, I don't think you feel that badly about Morris. I don't know how you feel about Kathy, but here's what I do know. I know that when you killed Susan, that was not something you wanted to do. Do, do you know how I know that? I mean, are you interested in why I know that? I'm gonna stay away from killing Susan. I told my, told my daughter, listen, Bob is somebody who, Bob doesn't kill because he enjoys killing. That's what Cody Gonzalez says. If you back him into a corner, yeah. he'll kill you. Well, you remember what Susan told me about Bob, which was, there's nothing we can do for her now. She's gone, but, you know, he's not. I can tell, Nick, it's very funny. You've been kind of waiting for this call from us and trying to figure out how you were going to, what you were going to say and how you're going to handle it. Am I right? You're right, 100%. Dinner concluded, and it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, he wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After three days of the prosecution's opening statement, it's now time for the defense to take the podium. And while Deputy D.A. Lewin and his team wove a multimedia narrative presentation of what they believe the evidence will show, the defense offers a low-tech presentation with occasional evidentiary photos and documents, but with few of the audiovisual elements that the prosecution used. Nevertheless, the defense expects that this evidence will plant reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. Robert Durst's lead defense counsel, Dick DeGuerin, stands and addresses the court. Mr. Chesnoff and I will both be presenting an open trial. Will you do the initial portion? I will. Are you ready? I've been ready for a long time. (laughs) Addressing the jury, DeGuerin has an ingratiating, courteous, soft-spoken Southern demeanor. In Durst's 2003 trial for the murder of Morris Black, 
DeGaron gained Durst's trust by coming up with a three-pronged strategy of, one, making the jury feel empathy for Durst with what he later called a poor little rich boy narrative, two, blaming the media and an aggressive New York prosecutor for demonizing Durst, and three, having Durst present a plausible narrative that he shot Black in self-defense in the course of a struggle for a gun. That strategy got Durst acquitted of the murder charges against him. The Dick DeGaron of 2003 was a vibrant, tenacious, and tireless advocate who conducted two mock trials in preparation for that case and outsmarted the prosecutors. It remains to be seen whether the Dick DeGaron of 2020 has that same level of energy and intensity and whether his litigation style, delivered with a deep draw, will be as effective on a California jury as it was on the panel in Texas. DeGaron begins by introducing his expansive team. Having spent the last year observing the LA criminal courts and recognizing the limited resources afforded most defendants, I personally would not have thought that calling attention to the resources at their disposal would have been the defense team's opening salvo. And yet, as DeGaron begins, he seems to relish the depth of their bench and the resources Robert Durst has been able to marshal in his defense. I want to start by introducing some folks. First, David Chesnoff. David Chesnoff's curly gray hair is slicked back and tucked behind his ears. His frameless glasses sit firmly on the bridge of his nose. The journalist Peter Latman once wrote, If you're in Las Vegas and in trouble, call David Chesnoff. He is regarded by many as Nevada's go-to criminal defense attorney. He has represented musicians, magicians, actors, athletes, poker players, business executives, and a biker gang when they have run afoul of the law, usually with great effectiveness. However, his legendary impact in Vegas appears to have, as the saying goes, stayed in Vegas, at least as it relates to his representation of Robert Durst in the pre-trial proceedings in this case, where he and his colleagues have faced defeat upon defeat in their motions to exclude or compel evidence. DeGaron then moves on to introduce another member of his team, Chip Lewis. Chip and I tried the case uh, in Gallatin together. Now, uh, almost 20 years ago. Chip Lewis sports a tidy goatee and thinning hair, both of which are considerably grayer than when he first appeared on Durst's behalf in the Texas trial and later in the Jinx TV series. He has the physique of a football lineman and his litigation style, as presented during the preliminary hearings, is that of a melancholy warrior committed to doing his job while acknowledging the challenging evidence that must be confronted on behalf of his client. DeGaron then introduces Donald M. Ray. Don Ray is the only LA-based lawyer who is officially on Durst's trial team and has been a nationally recognized criminal defense attorney for over three decades, having represented, among many others, an alleged drug lord in a California cocaine cartel, O.J. Simpson's friend Al Cowlings for the famous Bronco Chase, and Snoop Dogg's bodyguard in a murder trial. Thanks, Don. Tommy Mingledorf is a young fellow that's helping with us. He's carrying the wood and water. Tommy Mingledorf may carry the proverbial wood and water for the defense, but he's certainly not an intern. Mingeldorf has passed the bar and is an associate attorney. Lois Heaney is our jury selection lady, and she is invaluable. Heaney has been working as a litigation consultant for over 30 years. 
assisting lawyers with case strategy, jury selection, and witness preparation. Chris Garcia is in the audience, and he and Lauren Childress. Lauren, would you stand up, please? Lauren uh, will probably bring us twins before this case is over. Garcia and Childress are Durst's attorneys in civil litigation, and as such, they have no visible role in this trial. There's one member of Durst's team that curiously DeGuerin does not mention, but whose anecdotal presence underscores how Durst's massive resources make this trial so unique. She is an L.A. lawyer named Stephanie Ames. To introduce Ames, we need to go back to the spring of 2019. The parties in a Durst trial were gathered in Department 81 of the airport courthouse for a pretrial hearing from an adjacent room for attorneys to speak privately with their clients through a partition, the voice of Robert Durst could be heard screaming, quote, I hate these clothes. Why did you bring me these clothes? End quote. Through the thick door, another voice, a woman's, could be heard yelling in response, quote, I brought the white shirt and the blue jacket. End quote. The woman who emerged from the private meeting with Durst was Stephanie Ames. At a subsequent hearing, Durst would excoriate Ames for bringing him pants that were too small. Quote, I specifically told you 32-30. These are 31-30s, and I'm strangling in them. End quote. But Stephanie Ames is no mere dresser. She has been practicing law for over 20 years, and her downtown L.A. firm advertises an expertise in various aspects of criminal defense, from security fraud to violent offenses. During the pretrial hearings, however, Eames acted primarily as Durst's wardrobe manager and handler. This only serves to reaffirm the astonishing financial and manpower resources Robert Durst continues to have at his disposal. Durst is paying a seasoned attorney her hourly fees just to make sure he has the correct wardrobe. One last aspect to this anecdote that bears mentioning a hearing that occurred just before we overheard Durst's acrimonious outburst towards Ames. That proceeding offers clarifying context for this trial. The story will take a few minutes to tell, but the digression illuminates that while the depth and breadth of evidence and argument in the Durst case make for endlessly compelling storytelling, it comes at the great cost of social equity and fairness. The hearing was held in the same courtroom as the Durst hearing about an hour earlier. Judge Mark Wyndham, the judge on the Durst trial, presided over the sentencing of a 21-year-old black man named Armand Nelson. As Nelson was brought into the courtroom, his family sat in the gallery close together, dressed nicely and bearing expressions of grief and concern. Nelson wore a blue L.A. County Jail jumpsuit, black frame eyeglasses, hair styled in cornrows and rubber bands, with white plastic rosary beads around his neck. He smiled and nodded to his family and waved his cuffed hands as he moved to the defense table. One of the women in the group began to weep. In 2017, Nelson was with a group of three other young men when they stole a car from a driver while one of the men wielded a handgun. Nelson was on probation at the time for his first and only other offense. Nelson pleaded no contest to the carjacking charge and was in court to learn how long he will have to serve in state prison. 
Nelson's public defender, Aronda Hurst, shared with the court her client's significant attempts to make productive use of his time in custody, including completing an education program and volunteering for a program where inmates learn to fight wildfires. Presented with Nelson's certificates, Wyndham was visibly moved. Quote, it is impressive that he started applying himself. He's going to make something of himself. When he is released, and he will be released, he's got some of the fundamentals here to lead an honest and productive life. I'll make sure this goes in his packet, end quote. Then in a rare bit of bully pulpiting, Wyndham intimated frustration with the current sentencing protocols. Quote, you never know how legislation might change the rules. There's increasing recognition that people in their youth will act antisocially and yet in their maturity become productive members of society, end quote. However, Wyndham explained, the combination of an aggravated felony, carjacking while in possession of a firearm, with a probation violation, compelled Wyndham, by mandatory minimum laws, to sentence Nelson to, quote, be imprisoned in state prison, a total aggregate term of 15 years. I don't see that there's anything that would change this 15-year sentence, end quote. By state law, Nelson must serve at least 80% of that sentence. Wyndham then committed Nelson to the custody of the sheriff for delivery to the Department of Corrections. Nelson stood. As his free hand was cuffed to his manacled one, he turned and made one last awkward wave to his bereaved family. And with that, the young man was escorted out of the courtroom. In contrast to Nelson's public defender and his plea agreement, Robert Durst's team consists of five attorneys and one litigation consultant not to mention the two civil attorneys and the services of Stephanie Ames. These proceedings have been going on for five and a half years, and with the COVID adjournment will likely last nearly seven years before there is a verdict. Some have speculated that Durst's defense will cost well beyond $10 million, necessitating a massive expenditure of LA County resources to present the people's case. Setting aside Durst's presumed innocence or alleged guilt, it's impossible to overlook the essential dysfunction of our adversarial criminal justice system. We pay lip service to the notion that justice is blind and that everyone is treated equitably under the law. But the harsh truth is that money is the real engine of the American criminal legal process. Okay, digression over. DeGarren continues his opening. And by the way, that continuous rattling that you hear in the background is the sound of the court reporter typing her transcription of DeGarren's statement. And I want to introduce my wife, Janie. She's a little bashful, so she didn't want me to make her stand up. And uh, my oldest daughter, Michelle, and she's given me two fine grandsons, 18 and 16. A little bit about myself. I was first licensed to practice law in uh, 1965. You do the math. It's just about 55 years now. I practice in Houston. Now, some of the jurors during jury selection asked one of them very pointedly, what are you doing here from Texas? To Mr. Lewis. Well, uh, Chip and I have been representing Don for, as I say, almost 
<laughs> We're not bringing in that. That's the only thing you're not bringing in. DeGuerin mistakenly refers to Chip Lewis and him as together representing Don Ray rather than Durst in Texas. Ray jokes from the gallery, quote, we're not bringing that in, end quote, provoking laughter in the courtroom. DeGuerin says somewhat ruefully amid the laughter, quote, that's about the only thing we're not bringing in here, end quote. This appears to be a pointed reference to all of the prosecution's evidence that Judge Wyndham has deemed admissible in the case over the defense team's objections. It also marks the first of several slip-ups in DeGuerin's presentation. <laughs> and uh, we've been representing Bob since, well, I first uh, met him in the jail in Pennsylvania in November of 2001, right after he'd been arrested, rather spectacular, shoplifting a chicken salad sandwich, a Wall Street Journal, and a Band-Aid. Dick DeGuerin holds up a characteristically low-tech note card. Written on it is the Greek letter Pi. So what do you see here? That's the universal's uh, sign of pi. Lawyers kind of use it as shorthand to uh, represent the plaintiff or the prosecution. And the reason I have this in front of me is to tell you that you haven't heard the whole story yet. You've heard the prosecution's side of the story, what they think the evidence will show. DeGuerin turns the card over, revealing the Greek letter Delta on the back. And that's a Delta, and it's usually our shorthand for the defense. And I give this to you because it's my simple way of illustrating that there are two sides to every story. So I want to start by saying to you what you've probably heard of me saying before, Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. The phrase appears to be Dick DeGuerin's mantra for the trial, not only in the courtroom, but when dealing with the press. He repeats the statement less than a minute later. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. He did find her body. Shortly after someone had shot her in the back of the head, he was coming to visit her for the Christmas holidays, which they had done before. What you're looking at now is a letter that was among Susie Berman's uh, possessions after she died. A handwritten letter from Durst to Susan Berman appears on the TV screens in the courtroom. It reads, quote, This is what I want to do this year for Christmas. I want to get us two rooms at La Costa or whatever spa or resort you would like to go to for a couple of days before Christmas to a couple of days after. Four days, maybe a week, and I'll meet you there." End quote. Dick DeGuerin clarifies that the date of the letter is unknown, but he tells the jury that it establishes a pattern of Robert and Susan vacationing together for the holidays. According to the defense, that's exactly what Durst intended to do when he arrived at Berman's house in December of 2000. When Bob showed up and found her dead, he panicked. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He's run away all his life.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. DeGaran now lays the roadmap for his opening statement. I want to talk to you about who Bob Burst is, what he's been through for much of his life, what he's been through since Kathy disappeared 38 years ago, and what happened in Galveston when a jury found him not guilty of murdering Morris Black. And I want to talk about Bob and the, mis- the deviously misleading and heavily edited television series production. Not a documentary. Not a documentary. The Jinx. Quote, deviously misleading and heavily edited television series production. Not a documentary. Not a documentary. The Jinx. End quote. DeGaran's description of the jinx stands in stark contrast to Lewin's characterization of the series. Lewin told the jury that the evidence will show that Robert Durst himself initiated the interviews that led to the series, and while he acknowledged that the filmmakers took some liberties with the editing of the jinx, he told the jury that they would only hear the unedited version. Based on the prosecution's opening statement, Durst's interviews for the jinx will play a substantial role in their case since Judge Wyndham deemed the raw footage admissible at trial, and the defense has already agreed that the footage that will be played in court is, quote, true and accurate, end quote, they will have to rely on a strategy of trying to discredit the filmmaker's intentions in engaging with Durst. DeGaran pivots from the jinx to address an unsettling subject. I want to talk about the elephant in the room, Bob's dismemberment. Of Morris Black's blood. It's awful. I think that the evidence will show that the dismemberment of Morris Black is calculated to obscure everything else. I want to illustrate what I mean. And we couldn't find the talk. So we got to look at In my, I'm not an artist. Again, low tech. On the flip chart, Dick DeGaran uses a blue marker to draw three buckets. One is labeled Susan, one is labeled Morris Black, and one is labeled Kathy. DeGaran explains to the jury that the buckets represent the amount of evidence in each case. The Susan and Kathy buckets are empty, but DeGaran scribbles the Morris Black bucket full to the brim. The Morris Black bucket is full. 
and it's full of bad stuff, bad evidence. And our concern is that the evidence about Norris Black will spill over into those other buckets. That was Prosecutor John Lewin objecting that DeGuerin's chart should be treated as argument and not evidence, and therefore not be permitted as part of the defense team's opening statement. Judge Mark Windham sustains the objection, but he allows Dick DeGuerin to keep the flip chart by the podium. All right, the, uh, the, the drawing itself uh, is not necessarily art, so we may leave that. Okay. That's John Lewin pointing out that Dick DeGuerin has spelled Kathy's name wrong on his bucket diagram. DeGuerin has spelled the name with a Y, but Kathy spelled her name with an I-E. It's another small and, by itself, insignificant mistake from DeGuerin. DeGuerin quickly takes down the flip chart and returns to his point about the evidence regarding Morris Black. Bob spent hours and hours dismembering Morris Black's body. Let's talk about separating that evidence from the evidence, whatever it is, about Susan Berman's death, because that's what really is before you. That's the only thing you can decide. So let's talk about separating that also from whatever evidence there is about uh, Kathy Durr's disappearance. First, Bob fully accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durr's, for dismembering Lawrence Black's body. It's just a slip of the tongue. But, unlike his earlier missteps, it lands like an anvil in the courtroom. Dick DeGuerin said Bob accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durst. While DeGuerin quickly corrects himself, this is an error. 20 minutes into his opening statement, the jury and court observers won't soon forget. It would be a notable mistake from any defense counsel. But it's an ice-cold shock leaving the lips of DeGuerin, known for his linguistic prowess. DeGuerin chuckles off the flub, but as he forges onward, his face has turned visibly red. We have never run from that fact. Mr. Lewin uh, says that he's going to prove that Bob Durst killed, murdered Morris Black, even though the jury found him not guilty. A unanimous verdict. After three months, almost three months of trial. In his opening, uh, Mr. Lewin uh, used what I think is a, the classic debate tactic of overstating your opponent's case. The straight argument, Your Honor. This is what I want to talk about. This is what he said. Objection. But. <clears throat> Here's, here's the you, you, you make comment on the opening and that's all I mean. in, in distinguishing in your own. Yes, thank you. Oh. Well, it's not meant as personal. Uh, I've tried time and again to emphasize that it's not personal. But here's one, of the, one example of what he said in his opening statement. He said with some ridicule, oh, the gun went off by itself. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the evidence will show. You know, that's a misstatement. 
Mr. Rivers, I put up a, a clip. Mr. Durr said the gun shot him. That was not my language. Here's the clip Lewin played in his opening and his subsequent commentary. He takes the gun out from under whatever the yellow thing is on the, on the table. I grab him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. He also, if you listen to the end of that exchange, the evidence is going to demonstrate, says that I grabbed him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. Mr. Durst is describing the gun as if it had a mind of its own and that the gun is shooting Morris. No one could stop it. Judge Wyndham overrules Lewin's objection, but the tension between defense and prosecution continues to rise. Throughout the pretrial hearings, DeGarren and Chesnoff have offered numerous thinly veiled implications of prosecutorial misconduct by Lewin. The court has rejected each and every such charge, but Lewin has in turn verbalized his own critiques of the defense duo's proficiency with both the facts and the relevant laws in this case. DeGarren moves on from the skirmish to points of agreement between the two sides. We actually agree about some of the things about the evidence and what it will show. DeGarren says that the defense agrees that Morris Black was shot with a 22 caliber target pistol with a light trigger pull. But what the evidence will show is that Bob's finger was not on the trigger. Morris Black's finger was on the trigger. The evidence will show that what happened to his body, the dismemberment, could not change the manner in which he died. No matter how gruesome what happened to his body after he was dead. If DeGarren's description of the dismemberment sounds familiar, it's because he's using the same words that won Durst an acquittal in Galveston. Durst articulated the defense's strategy during his interviews for the Jinx. The dismemberment has nothing, to, should not have anything to do. The judge should separate the dismemberment from the death of Morris Black because the dismemberment did not cause his death. And that was them listening to my story. The indictment says that he was dismembered, he was killed by being dismembered. And I said, I did not kill him by dismembering him. I dismembered him after he was dead. They, they, they put in front of the jury about a thousand times. Was there anything that Robert Durst could do after finding Morris Black dead to, to, to prevent his death or to change the manner in which he died? And they, they brought up about a zillion examples. Can you unstrike a match? No. Can you unring a bell? No. If somebody's dead, is there anything you can do to prevent him from dying? No. DeGarren explains that after Durst dismembered Morris Black, he did something he's done frequently throughout his life. He ran. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's part of his makeup. It's, a, it's typical of his emotional condition, which has uh, been diagnosed, and you'll hear some evidence about that, on the mild side of autism. It used to be called Asperger's condition or Asperger's syndrome. It's characterized by social awkwardness, by flat affect, lack of uh, outward signs of emotion, an inability to discern the feelings of others, 
an inability to read social cues. Other people often describe someone with Asperger's or mild autism as a little weird. Now that describes Bob to a T. DeGaran seems to be responding to Lewin's efforts during his 2015 interview of Durst to get Robert to concede that the Asperger's diagnosis was, quote, bullshit, end quote. Yeah, another thing that I've got to say, the whole Asperger's thing. I never thought that amounted anything. That was the psychiatrists coming up with an explanation. <laughs> and it was never necessary at the trial. We didn't need the psychiatrist. Right. I mean, Bob, you agree, that was a load of bullshit by the shrink. Yeah. Mr. Gareth conceded during the interview that the Asperger's thing was bullshit. DeGaran seems to imply that, given the stigma associated with autism and the weakness that it implied, Robert Durst was privately ashamed of the label or dismissive of the doctor's findings. This also seems to be part of a concerted effort by the defense to engender sympathy among the jurors for Durst. Later, DeGaran itemizes Durst's ailments. Right now, as you can see, he's great. You know, this will show that um, he's had quite a bit of medical problems. This will show that he's, first, he's a cancer survivor. He had esophageal cancer. And uh, two spinal surgeries. He's had brain surgery. He has difficulty uh, walking. Maintaining his balance. De tells the jury that due to Durst's autism, he had difficulty in social situations, which drove him to self-medicate. He smoked marijuana on a daily basis. And later, as the, the evidence developed, we see that he also drank and used methamphetamine. But De doesn't dwell on Durst's drug use for long. He returns to the events in Galveston, beginning with Durst moving into his tiny apartment and meeting his neighbor, Morris Black. So, not long after he moved in, he found that his neighbor was this cranky, irascible, unpleasant man named Morris Black. A photo of Morris Black appears on the court TV screen. His face is twisted in a grimace, brow furrowed, lips snarled. The picture is clearly a mugshot. John Lewin stands up at the sight of the image. Now, it's not just us saying that Morris Black was an unpleasant guy. There's, there's a mugshot taken of him when he was arrested. And, okay. <laughs> coming in. We, we, we need to go. We need to go. That's coming in. In chambers, Your Honor. There's going to be evidence in this. No, if, Your Honor. Has me. Your Honor, it was we, in the. It was in the. Gallery. We have an, Your Honor, we have an objection. There have been numerous in the inadmissible things we've like already discussed, which I did not object to. Okay. It's now apparently going to just be open season without listening to any of the court's prior instructions, orders, motions, etc. We need to go discuss it. Lewin is objecting to the fact that. Without the court's permission, DeGaran is using a mugshot to present Black, implying that he was a bad guy who got arrested for something. According to the rules of evidence, this is a patently prejudicial way of characterizing Black, and Judge Wyndham wastes no time in forbidding DeGaran from using such tactics. Uh, the judge to sustain is disregard the reference to being a arrest. Not, uh, I don't know if there's evidence in, in Galveston. We're not in Galveston. 
Lewin's outburst has a metaphorical bite. De Guerin is not in Galveston in the same way that Dorothy was no longer in Kansas. This trial is not simply in a different city. It's an entirely different universe. 17 years have passed since the Galveston trial. The jinx has made Durst infamous. And while Los Angeles has the image of being a much more progressive jurisdiction than Galveston, the rules of evidence have been applied much more favorably to the prosecution by this LA County judge than they were by the Texas judge. And finally, based on the voir dire interviews of the jurors, it's hard to see that DeGuerin's strategy of running against the prosecutor, the media, and Bob's painful upbringing will garner the same sympathy from a West LA jury that it did from the Galveston panel. So, we are not in Galveston means that we are not in the place that acquitted Durst of murdering a man after he admitted dismembering the man's corpse. Okay, please. No, we're not in Galveston. So, uh, I'm in Southern California and it's very pleasant here. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. You may continue your opening statement there. Next, DeGuerin posits that Robert Durst's autism prevented him from immediately seeing the more volatile parts of Morris Black's personality. But Bob and Morris became friends. Understanding, Bob had a, a difficulty discerning Morris Black's uh, social cues. His Asperger's condition blinded him to Morris's meanness and nasty personality. He was, Morris Black was mean, disagreeable, and dangerous. He argued with everybody. He started fights. Bob saw some of that. DeGuerin proceeds to describe several incidents that illuminate the more disagreeable aspects of Morris Black's character. He tells the jury that Robert and Morris once went for a walk on the beach. They took their shoes off to walk barefoot in the sand, but when they returned, Morris couldn't find his shoes. He yelled at a young man nearby, accusing him of stealing his footwear, and Durst had to intervene to prevent a fight. Another time, Durst remembers that Morris became angry and unruly at a Mexican restaurant. On a different occasion, Morris told Robert that when he was ill, he visited the University of Texas Medical Branch and got into a fight with the staff, prompting them to physically restrain him. Black was also allegedly kicked out of the Rosenberg Library after cursing at several children and their mothers. Bob was afraid. My Bob had reason to be afraid. There's two sides to the story. Bob Durk is going to testify. We're not required to believe that. But I want you to know that because I want you to know what he knew about Morris Black and what he believed about Morris Black. In that moment, DeGuerin dropped a bombshell. He has told the jury that Durst will testify on his own behalf and thus waive his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. DeGuerin continues his characterization of Morris Black's demeanor on the day he was shot. On the day that Morris showed that conviction to Bob, he was angry, he was cursing, and Bob will tell you, Bob went into the bathroom. I believe that Mr. Lewin covered this part on his opening. Bob went into the bathroom, and as he was in the bathroom, he heard a gunshot inside the house. Bam! Morris had packed up the conviction letter and shot at it. He did, but he hit the door frame. An evidence photo of the door frame appears on the court TV screen. 
There's a jagged notch in the wood about an inch long, presumably where the bullet hit the frame. Another time, Morris shot the gun in the house again. It was shortly after 9-11, the World Trade Center uh, and Pentagon attacks. They infuriated Morris. He watched them on the television and he was ranting and raving. Once again, Bob went into the bathroom and he heard a gunshot. He rushes out and here's Morris and Morris has shot the gun in the, in the house again. This time he shot it into the closet where a bunch of the old uh, stuff, the, the television thing had come in the styrofoam which eventually got, got thrown out. Um, and this time, Bob took the gun from him and hit it. He said, don't ever come back here. DeGaron explains that shortly after Morris's second incident with the gun, Robert attended a wedding in Houston. According to the defense, when Robert returned, he found Morris waiting for him in the Galveston apartment. So he goes in and he finds Morris there. He goes directly to where the gun, he had the gun hidden in the oven in the kitchen. Gun's not there. He turns around, he confronts Morris aggressively. Morris jumps up from the table where he's sitting and grabs the gun and comes around at Bob and points the gun at Bob. Bob grabs his hand, doesn't grab the gun, grabs all his hand on Morris's right hand and they fall to the floor, the gun goes off and shoots Morris in the left side of his nostril. Strange play, remember that. According to DeGaron, Morris Black's death was an accident. The defense then points to the autopsy report as indicating that, even though Black's head was never found, Morris was shot in the nasal cavity while struggling with dirt. The autopsy report showed that all, although Morris Black probably died almost instantly, he had aspirated some blood in his lungs. The medical examiner had the opinion that in order to aspirate blood, especially when he died almost immediately, that there had to be some involvement of the nasal cavity, which corroborated what Bob said and what Bob will tell you about where the bullet struck Morris. In addition to the autopsy, DeGaron points to a small injury that Durst had when he was arrested as evidence of a struggle between Robert and Morris. A photo taken by police appears on the TV screen. The next um, thing that I want to show you include uh, a slide that Mr. Lewin showed you. Let's leave that up for a second. This was taken by the police. There's another uh, photograph that's a close-up of his hands, and there it is. Now, what the, what the uh, screen has showed now in very close-up is Bob's white thumb. The evidence will show that what you're looking at is a resolving blood blister. A photo taken by police appears on the TV screen. It's a close-up of Robert Durst's hands. The resolving blood blister is on the inside of Durst's thumb, just below the knuckle. The greenish scab is roughly the size of the head of a pin. With Bob's hand on Morris's hand on the gun, when the slide came back, after the gun went off, it pinched Bob's Thumb. Right where you see back to the it's proof that Bob's finger was not on the trigger. It's proof 
that he was struggling with Morris Black over the gun when the gun went off. It's proof that there was no intent to kill Morris Black. It's proof of self-defense. In the campaign to pick apart John Lewin's narrative of three interconnected murders, DeGuerin has reprised his Galveston mission of instilling reasonable doubt that Durst intentionally killed Morris Black, and in so doing has made many of the same arguments, including, you can't unstrike a match. If somebody is dead, there's nothing you can do to prevent them from dying. Now the defense must address the other two murder allegations. For this, Dick DeGuerin and David Chesnoff have no playbook from a previous trial. Somehow they must open the jurors' minds to the questions, did Robert Durst light the matches that caused Kathy's disappearance and Susan Berman's shooting, or did he simply find them burning? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Okay, let's talk about the dismemberment. The elephant in the room. He saw it across the sky bones and the arm bones. Instead of cutting around the joints as you would if you were going to have turkey for Thanksgiving and you and you carve that turkey, you, you always go around the joints. It was just, it was crazy. Unplanned. That's what we think the evidence will show you. It was unplanned. It was further on. And again, he ran. And he was arrested again, shoplifting a chicken salad sandwich with $400 in his pocket. What he wanted to do was kill himself rather than be arrested. He had decided that he was going to kill himself, and he had talked to Debbie about it. He even had a plot to, to kill himself in Douglas's driveway. An editor can turn night into day, and he didn't realize that. And that's what happened with the jinx. There is no evidence. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman. And he doesn't know who did. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Taracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Taracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodney. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>